Amen. Well, good morning. Greetings, everybody. It's good to see you today. Welcome to New Life. If you don't know me, my name is Steve. If you do know me, my name is still Steve. <laughs> and uh, if this is your first time here, I want to thank you for coming. I know we have a number of guests with us today, and uh, we're thrilled that you're here today. So welcome to you. And if you are new, you should know that New Life, this church, is a church that believes that the Bible is the Word of God to us, and so we make a habit of preaching and teaching every weekend from the Bible, because we want to know what God thinks about things. And by the way, that's a good reason to make a habit out of attending church on Sundays, to be regularly reminded of what God thinks. Sometimes that's the furthest thing from our minds, right? We need to be reminded of that. Around here, we believe the Bible shoots straight with us and tells us the truth about ourselves, about God, about life death, and about eternity. And uh, if you're not accustomed to being in church, you should know that at times when we hear God's word, it makes us a little bit uncomfortable, okay? I'm that way. It makes me uncomfortable at times to hear the word of God. So just know that's a normal part of experience of sitting under the teaching of God's word, but also know that the scriptures always give us a word of hope, and that hope is always found in Jesus Christ, you know, this week in our city, we've experienced several tragic losses. Uh, students who took their own lives. And uh, to me, just the reality of that this week compounds the importance of the message that we're talking about today. But I'd like us to take a moment and bow our heads. And would you just pray for the family members and friends of, um, of these students? Father, we declare that down here on the earth, we just don't understand everything that happens. And we don't understand why some things happen. We do know there are a number of people who are carrying around in their hearts um, deep despair and deep hurt and deep pain. And Lord, sometimes they're not sharing it or showing it. But I pray you'd help us, transform us into the kind of people who look more deeply into people's eyes and seek to know what's going on in their hearts and love them. Lord, we do pray that you would comfort and come alongside those who are struggling this week to just come to grips with what has happened. And Lord, may your church, may your people just be activated by this, and may they move in close and minister the healing salve of the grace of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would take these pretty ugly incidents and turn them into something beautiful, bring something good out of the bad that has happened. And we trust you in that. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. There's a little study outline in your worship folder, and you can bring it, take it out and follow along. Um, the title of the message today is The Most Important Decision You Will Ever Make in Your Life. The absolute most important decision you will ever make in your life. And I'm going to contend today that the most loving thing that you can do for someone is to help them get prepared for eternity. And conversely, the most loving thing that someone can do for you is to help you get prepared for forever. Certainly there are other ways of loving people. You can scrape the frost off their frozen windshield in the morning or rake their leaves or things like that. Many ways to love people, but I believe the most loving thing we can do for people is to help them be ready for forever. Why do I say that? 
Because forever is a long time. If someone has a wonderful, happy life here for 80 years, but is miserable for the next 400 billion years following their death, that would be a horrible thing. And at that point, they would likely think, why, oh why, didn't I give more thought to being prepared for this? So when you think about it, helping people now get prepared for then is the absolute most loving thing you could do for them. Well, the Bible teaches in no uncertain terms that Jesus loves people. Maybe you grew up in church and sang that little song, Jesus loves me, this I know. Or Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Jesus loves people. He truly loves people. And because of that, he often explained to people how to be prepared to meet God, how to be prepared for eternity. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. And maybe you're thinking, well, why should I trust what he said? Why should I trust that guy? Why should I trust that Jesus is right about these things? And I think that's a fair question. Those of us in the room who love Jesus and follow Jesus have decided to trust his words over the opinions of man for many reasons, but mainly because of this. Jesus has lived in eternity, and we haven't. He's been there. To us, it just makes good sense to trust the guy who's been there over the speculations of people who have only known life here on this earth. Does that make sense? So we trust his words. So let's ask this morning, what did Jesus teach about being prepared for eternity? And the passage that we just read together records the conclusion of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount that we've been walking through together here for the last several months. And, uh, you know, sometimes you can be in a church and the pastor will say, now in closing, and then they go on for like another 20 minutes, and you're like, wait, I thought you said you were closing. Well, Jesus is actually landing this plane, this sermon here. And as he does, he brings this message to a close by calling his listeners to make a decision. And it's a choice that he says is so very, very important. It's the absolute most important decision that anyone can ever make because it's a choice that will determine their eternal destiny. And there is no decision more important than that. Where you go to eat this afternoon is an important decision, but it's not as important as this. Deciding what team to cheer for, it's important, but it's not this important. Deciding where to go to college if you're a young adult, that's an important decision, but it's not nearly as important as this decision. Choosing a spouse is very important. That's an extremely important decision, but it's not nearly as important as this one. Selecting a career, deciding on a house to buy, making investment decisions for your future, all of those are very, very important choices you know what? In the grand scheme of things, the gravity of those decisions pales in comparison to the weightiness of this decision that we're talking about today. Jesus is laying out before us a choice, and it's a choice that affects forever. In fact, you can get all of those other decisions wrong, but if you get this one right, you will be okay, truly okay, forever. And so I I want you this morning to take to heart several key things that Jesus said about the biggest decision of your life. So you can turn your study guide over to the back side. See, we're halfway done with the sermon already, right? 
First, Jesus is saying to us that this decision is a destiny-determining choice that only has two options. You know, sometimes we're faced with a myriad of options, right? We can kind of short-circuit, like, what do I do, what do I do? But Jesus said, there's really only two options here. Two gates, a narrow one and a wide one. Two roads, a difficult, obscure one with only a few travelers and a broad six-lane highway with crowds of people on it. He said there are two types of teachers to listen to, two types of trees to eat fruit from, two ways to try and gain God's favor, and two foundations to build your life on. Lots and lots of twos, lots of pairs. I believe Jesus is saying here that in this all-important decision, there are really only two possible paths. And when you look at the sermon here as a whole, and indeed when you look at the whole story of the Bible, you see that simply put, this is the choice between God's way and man's way. I mean, that's really the choice in a nutshell. Every single human being must decide whether they're going to take their cues from God or from their fellow human beings. For me, will I hear and heed and accept God's word and God's way and God's viewpoint on life? Or instead, will I listen to the various opinions and speculations coming from the mouths and pens and keyboards and YouTube videos of the experts down here on the earth? Do you see that really that is the basic decision here? God's way or man's way? Without question, Jesus is saying the narrow gate is God's way. The wide gate is man's way. The narrow road is God's path. The broad road is man's path. And what we see is Jesus wanting to love people by influencing their choice. What does he say? Enter by the narrow gate. In other words, choose God's way. Listen to God. Believe his words over anything humans might say to you to the contrary. You know, we live in a day when all manner of experts, pundits, celebrities, and commentators use all forms of media and social media to tell the masses what they think life is really all about. I mean, how many of you watch television? Like half of you, seriously? Okay, how many of you get on the internet from time to time and look up things? How many of you listen to the radio? I mean, you can get on these things any time of the day or night and find somebody telling you what's up, right? And how to think about life and what's important and what cause to support and all that kind of stuff. I sometimes wonder what angels think when they observe who gets a broad hearing down here on the earth. Hey, Gabriel, why do you think so many of them take their cues from Oprah? Or Dr. Phil, or like Jay, Miley Cyrus, you know? Why? <laughs> the author of Proverbs wrote this, There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. You see, that's why this choice is so important. Jesus made it very clear. The two paths have two very different destinations. Now, there are voices in our culture that tell us that there are many roads that lead to God, like he's at the top of this mountain and you can take any one of a number of roads and they'll all get you to God. But is that true? Listen to Jesus, the Son of God, who in John 14, 6 said, I am the way, the truth, the life, 
No one gets to the Father except through me, he said. That's very narrow. In Acts 4.12, it says, Neither is salvation found in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The consistent message all through the Bible is that only one road leads to God, and it's a narrow road, and it's called narrow because it's only through Jesus that anyone can actually know God, be accepted by God, and live with God. Only the narrow road leads to life with God. Where did Jesus say the other road leads? What's the destination of those who embrace the way of human understanding, the way of man? Look again. The broad road leads to destruction. The diseased barren tree is cut down and thrown into the fire. The phony followers are sent away. Depart from me, Jesus will say banished from the presence of God forever. The house built on a faulty foundation will be devastated by the coming storm. So destruction, fiery judgment, separation from God, utter collapse, and devastation. Jesus is saying that is the ultimate destiny of all who choose to listen to man rather than to God. So Jesus, the loving Savior, pleads with people by warning them of the dire consequences of making the wrong choice. In effect, he's saying, don't be foolish and trust the the various and fickle opinions of fallen human beings who don't know the word of God. God knows best what God requires to dwell with him. Trust what God says. Again, this is the most important decision any of us will ever make because God says this one will determine our ultimate destiny. Now, some people might think, maybe you think this, well, you know, I ought to be able to go to church or turn on the TV to religious programming and hear a preacher, you know, guide me into the narrow way, into the way of truth. But according to Jesus, such is not the case. So the second truth about the most important decision you'll ever make is that there are plenty of teachers misleading people about this choice. In verse 15 of chapter 7, he said, Beware of false prophets, false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous or ferocious wolves. That's pretty sobering, isn't it? I wish Jesus was wrong on this one. I wish every preacher on TV, I wish every pastor in every church was preaching the narrow road by proclaiming that Jesus is the only way to God. But sadly, this isn't the case. Jesus said that even in his day, there were a number of false teachers peddling false messages. And he warned people to be on their guard. Both he and then his apostles following him predicted the influence of false teachers would only increase as history progresses down through the ages towards its ultimate climax. Jesus himself, later on in Matthew, would say this, Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Peter would write that there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they've made up. 
You've heard some of those, right? Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. Paul, with the help of his friends, gave birth to a brand new church in a city called Ephesus. He spent some time there and then he trained some local men to be pastors and elders to shepherd that congregation. And as he was getting ready to leave, he had a meeting with them on the beach there and he spoke from his heart to them and he said this in Acts 20, 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Later, he would write to a young pastor further describing these people. Men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth, who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. And then John wrote, Beloved, do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. And so the Bible strongly urges people to be very discerning, to not just blindly follow every preacher who mentions Jesus or talks about the Bible. Even if they seem sweet and nice, even if they're warm and engaging, even if they claim to be able to heal people and cast out demons, even if they're dynamic and electrifying in their personality and presentation, do not mistakenly think that any of those traits mark them as men of God. They don't. Paul knew some of these imposters. He wrote about them in 2 Corinthians 11. For such men, he wrote, are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. So they're masqueraders. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so it is no surprise if his servants, Satan's servants, also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So you say, well, all right. If it's true, then, that not every person who claims to speak for Christ actually speaks for Christ, then how do we know? I mean... How do we know the good guys from the bad guys, right? Well, Jesus helps us. He tells us right here in Matthew 7, by their fruits you will know them. It's by examining what is produced through their life and their ministry that you can know. But that's also why it's difficult sometimes to know up front, because it takes time to see fruit produced. And by the way, don't make the mistake of assuming that some, because someone has a large following, or a large audience or congregation, that that means they're being blessed by God. The Bible does not equate those two things. Lots of followers with blessing from God. I mean, Hitler had a large following, right? Don't make that assumption. And that would rule out Jesus himself, whose audience kind of dwindled over time. Here in the context, a few markers are suggested for how to identify false teachers. Let me mention several. How do I know? How do I know if that guy I'm, whose podcast I'm listening to is a false prophet? Well, typically, you will not find any message of a narrow gate in their teaching. You know, you think about this, and you think, well, I should be able to listen to a, a guy and kind of take what he says and examine it with the scriptures, and that's true, but, but so often it's not in what they say, it's in what they don't say. It's in what's left out of their message. 
A false prophet typically will not clearly communicate that Jesus alone is the only way by which anyone can be made right with God. When they go on the late night talk shows and the host presses them for a clear answer on that, they squirm, they fidget in their seat. They talk about how non-judgmental God is and how much God loves everyone, but they will not allow themselves to be pinned down to say that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They don't want to offend anybody. So the exclusive claims of Jesus, which are offensive to many, don't often come up in their teaching or their conversation. There's no narrow gate in their message. Second, they offer no disturbing teaching. You're not likely to hear much difficult doctrine from a false teacher. They don't clearly communicate, for example, the reality of God's judgment because they don't want to offend anybody. They just want their words to be soothing and comforting all the time. And so they teach nothing that would convict anybody's heart towards repentance to the point they become desperate for a savior. These preachers then are not like Jesus, who was unafraid to tell people the truth, not only about God's grace and God's love, but also about God's holiness and his judgment and his wrath. Wasn't it Jesus who said, don't be afraid of him who can destroy the body? Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. These false teachers seem to want to recast and remake Jesus into a loving life coach or a chaplain of the American dream whose primary aim is to help people achieve everything that their unregenerate heart wants. But without the message of the reality of judgment, the good news doesn't sound that good. I mean, isn't it true that when you understand that God is holy and righteous and is wrathful towards sin and our race is doomed except that Jesus Christ came and stood in our place and absorbed the wrath of God for our sins, doesn't that make grace sound then amazing to us? And we go, yes, we have a Savior who loves us, who rescues us from the holy and just wrath of a righteous God. Thank God for Jesus. But the message of these self-proclaimed prophets doesn't include that there's no need for the atoning death of christ whereby he absorbed god's wrath against our sins as our sinless substitute for these wolves in sheep's clothing these phonies who masquerade as preachers of the gospel there's no need to talk much about sin or about the adultery of the human heart a crushed savior who willingly stood in our place they'll talk a lot about jesus as our example in suffering but not as our sinless substitute. We don't talk much about the resurrection that proved God's satisfaction with the payment that was made. They talk mostly about having faith that Jesus will help you be a better you and achieve your dreams. Here's the real problem. The Jesus that they're proclaiming isn't the real Jesus. It's a Jesus they've concocted in their own puffed-up minds a fake Jesus who supports the vision of what they think life is really all about. They smilingly offer us a man-centered message, not a God-centered one. And as a result, third, there's no real life in their message. It's not life-giving, like the gospel is life-giving. If you don't end up experiencing all the wonderful blessings that they say Jesus wants for you in this life, whose fault is it? It's your fault. You didn't have enough 
faith. You didn't work the system right. You didn't follow the formula close enough. You didn't say the right things, pray the right prayers, or give enough to their ministry. Their gospel isn't good news. It's bad news. It's man-centered, performance-based, crossless, bloodless, and lifeless. They're peddling a transactional gospel that bears just enough resemblance to the real gospel that millions of people swallow it whole to their own spiritual death. And since I'm on a roll, here's one more as a bonus. These guys flaunt a luxurious lifestyle stoked by greed. You see it, right? It says in the Bible that these guys believe that godliness is a means to financial gain. And it shows up in their lifestyle, always shows up in their lifestyle. Cars, homes, yachts, jets, toys, clothes. Of course, they say Jesus is blessing them abundantly and they want to live in the fullness of that blessing and help others do the same. Don't be fooled. Material wealth is not the promise of the true gospel. In fact, the true gospel claims power to deliver people from greed and from being obsessed with accumulating more and more and more stuff by giving us a superior satisfaction in Jesus. That's the true gospel. For the true believer in the true Jesus, the things of this earth, as the old hymn says, will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And so as Jesus has said before, be discerning. Let's be discerning. Don't just indiscriminately hitch your wagon to the latest hip, cool, dynamic preacher who says Jesus a lot. All false prophets talk about Jesus. All false prophets like Jesus. It's just not the real Jesus of the Bible. Like I said, it's the one they've concocted in their own brain. You see, the warning Jesus is giving here, listen, is this. There is a false way of salvation promoted by false teachers that produces false Christians who end up building their lives on false foundations that will crumble in the storm of God's coming judgment. Don't be deceived. Don't allow yourself to be duped. Because number three, those who are deceived by false teachers will end up experiencing their worst nightmare. Here again, some of the most haunting words in all the Bible from the lips of Jesus. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Man, doesn't that sound like a reference to some of those guys? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Wow! Wow! I mean, Jesus is the true teacher of true truth, and the truth according to Jesus is that those who drink the Kool-Aid of false teaching will end up experiencing their absolute worst nightmare. Wasn't Jesus here declaring that many people who think they're on the right road will find out to their chagrin one day that they were on the wrong road all along? Isn't that what he's saying? Isn't Jesus saying that many people who claim to be Christians aren't? 
And by the time they find out, it'll be too late to switch roads. Some so-called Christians know they're not the real deal. We call them phonies or imposters or wolves in sheep's clothing. They know they're just playing the game. It's all for show. Others, though, genuinely believe that they are Christians and they're going to be shocked on Judgment Day to be told that they never actually had a real relationship with Jesus. I never knew you. That word, no, it's a relationship word. We weren't in, in covenant relationship together, despite what you thought. They really did think they knew Jesus, but the reality is, reality is they didn't ever know the real Jesus. Again, only the fake Jesus they'd created in their own minds. And Jesus is going to say to them, I know you thought you prayed to me, but it wasn't to me you were praying. The real Jesus will declare, I don't know you. We never had a relationship. It hit me recently that uh, one of the things that we're seeing in our church in recent years is churched people becoming Christians. That's right, people who would have called themselves Christians, who would have checked that box on the survey, Christian, oh yeah, that's me. Who went to church, owned a Bible, raised their kids in church. Those people, through repeatedly hearing the true gospel, are being increasingly awakened to the reality that they didn't actually have a real relationship with the real Jesus. They were churchians, but not Christians. You say, well, Steve, I'm sitting here in church. Doesn't that make me a Christian? No more than sitting in a garage makes you a car, right? In a room full of people, a crowd this size, there's no doubt in my mind. There are people in this room right now who up until this moment have believed, I'm a Christian. I go to church. I do that stuff. I own a Bible. I'm in Ameri- you know, I live in America, for crying out loud. Christian nation, right? That could exactly be where some of you are today. You know the Christian lingo. You can come across as a churchy type person. But the reality is, is that Jesus is not the supreme treasure of your heart and you don't really love Jesus. Listen, Christians love Jesus. They love Jesus. But for you, you find joy in lots of other things, but not really in him. I mean, not really. His gospel has not really yet dropped from your head down into your heart and taken root there. And as a result, you and Jesus don't really know each other in the way that he's talking about here. Truth may be, you may be sitting here in church today, but you may not really be a Christian. So if that rings true at all in your heart, here's what a loving pastor would say to you. The road that you're on that has seemed so right to you up until this point, if you follow it down and around the bend, there's a huge sinkhole that you're going to fall into. Or hear Jesus say it another way, when the storm of God's judgment comes and beats against the carefully constructed life that you've built on the wrong foundation of human approval and human achievement, your whole existence will crumble and you will be swept away. What a tragedy. You know what? It's a needless tragedy. It doesn't have to be that way. 
Yes, you've sinned. You know that. I've sinned. We've all sinned. Our sin and selfishness and rebellion against God and recreating God into our own image, mistreating his people, all of that, it is extremely offensive to a holy God. Don't let anybody tell you differently. And the fact that you haven't done as many bad things as your coworker or your neighbor is totally irrelevant. It doesn't matter one bit. They're not the standard. God is. When we get honest and measure ourselves against the holy character of our maker, we all fall short. We humans are not like God and are therefore, by nature, disqualified from dwelling with him. But that's exactly what he wants. He wants to be with us. Can you believe that? Our maker, the God of creation, wants to have a family around him. That's why he's called Father. He wants to be with us. And the good news presented to us in the Bible is that God himself made a way for it to happen. He did it. He did what we could not do. And that's one reason I know the Bible is God's book and not a product of man's mind. Because man would never propose this and call it good news. Man would create a plan by which we would reform ourselves and pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and just do it. Instead of a third-party salvation plan, which is the message of the Bible, mankind would craft a self-salvation plan by which we would just make it happen ourselves. And in fact, that is exactly what mankind has done. That is the broad road, the self-salvation plan. The religion of human achievement is the broad road, and the vast majority of people are on that road. It's crowded over there. But over on the narrow road are a few people who have come to grips with God's actual truth. And they've chosen to believe God instead of man. It's dawned on them they can never, never measure up to God. But what they couldn't do, achieve perfection. By the way, you know who makes it into heaven? Perfect people. Heaven is a perfect place for perfect people, not a decent place for decent people. Be ye therefore perfect, Jesus said, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. It takes perfection to get into heaven, but what we couldn't do, achieve perfection, God did for us by sending his own Son, Jesus, to live that perfect life that we couldn't live and then offer his record to us as a gift. Then, he submitted to execution like a common criminal on an old rugged cross, let people pound spikes into his wrists and his side and his feet and nail him to a cross so that he could absorb the just wrath of a holy God against our sin as our substitute. That's why we call the gospel good news. It's the great exchange. He took our sin and offers us his perfect record of righteousness. I like to call it his straight A report card of perfection, offered as a gift, gift righteousness, and then God raised him from the grave to demonstrate that he was indeed happy with the payment that was made. The people on the narrow road are those who simply believe that good news. They're like, yeah, I believe that. I believe God did all the heavy lifting. People on the narrow road rest in what Jesus did for them, and they forsake their own efforts to try to be good enough for God. They trod down the narrow path with a few fellow companions 
praying for those over on the broad road to come join them. They joyfully endure the pains and trials of this life, living under the gracious rule of their new king, Jesus, and they look forward to life with him forever. They chose Jesus as the foundation for their life and their future because they know that Jesus is the only rock who will not fail them in the storm of God's coming judgment. They are Jesus' true sheep, true sheep, cared for and guided by the great shepherd himself. They're like the good trees that bear good fruit because they're rooted and grounded in the person and work of Jesus. They know that he's the vine and they're the branches and they realize it's his vitality and life that flows into their life and out through their life. It animates their work and ministry and service. Only because of their connection with Jesus, they literally live from his life. In fact, if you talk to a true Christian, they will say, he is my life. We sing that, right? Jesus is my life. You know what? Jesus wants this for all of us, for all of us. He wants it for you. He wants it for me. Maybe you hear this and you think, that sounds too good to be true. But I'm telling you, it comes straight from the lips of Jesus. You can trust Jesus to guide you in the right path. Well, there's one final truth that I think emerges from Jesus' teaching here, and it's this. Choosing the right path is hard but worth it. He himself said, the gate is narrow and the way is what? Hard. You know what that word means? Hard. Difficult. But it leads to life. Well, sure it's hard. Sure it is. That makes sense, right? If it was easy and pleasant, more people would be on the narrow road. Here's why I believe Jesus said, it's so hard. Think about it. The big crowds are on the other road, so when you're on the narrow road, sometimes it feels kind of lonely. Like, what's going on all over there? You know, all the commotion and hubbub is over there, right? And you're trucking along the narrow road. So sometimes it's just hard because it, it's lonely at times. It's hard because conventional wisdom says that the majority is usually right. So you might get ridiculed for going the way of the small minority, you know, Jesus promised that would be the case, and he also said he'd be with us. It's hard because declaring the truth of the narrow gate, when you talk to people and say, you know what, it's only through Jesus, you will likely be viewed with disdain, and you'll likely be charged with being a bigot and being intolerant. Like, you don't mean to, you don't mean to say that, like, all people can only get to God through Jesus. You don't mean to say that, right? It's like, no, I do mean to say that because that's what Jesus said. And we need to trust Jesus. It's hard because choosing the narrow road and the firm foundation requires faith. Faith in someone you can't see, you can't touch, you can't hold, and trust in his words that were spoken 2,000 years ago. In a postmodern world like ours, the choice to believe an ancient book over the scholarly opinions of modern-day experts will inevitably be scorned. You believe that? I mean, isn't that Bible just full of myths and fairy tales? You're believing that over these really smart people who have more degrees after their name than a thermometer? Really? What's the matter with you? 
Choosing the narrow road will be hard because it requires more than just hearing Jesus' words. It involves acting upon them, right? Jesus declared that building your life on a solid foundation that will withstand the coming storm of judgment requires us to both hear his words and what? Do them. Act on them. Obey them. To only hear but not respond is to remain on shaky ground. So Jesus finished up his sermon. He was done. And Matthew records the response of the people. When Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So Jesus is all done with the sermon, and the people who heard him said, Whoa, <laughs> that was heavy. That was weighty. I mean, that guy's teaching with some gravitas. It's not like the pablum we normally get from our teachers. And you know why Jesus spoke with the ring of authority? Because he was God. <laughs> you know why he could speak with authority on how to enter heaven and how to prepare for eternity? Because he'd lived in eternity. He'd been there. He dwelled with the Father in eternity for millennia. He knew what he was talking about, and the people knew it. They're like, whoa, that was heavy. What's your response to the teachings of Jesus about the narrow road and the broad road? What's, what's your response? I want to take a few minutes as I close and uh, talk to a couple groups of people here this morning. I want to talk to two kinds of people for just the 90 seconds. I want to talk to those of you who are churched and those of you who are unchurched. So I know we got some churched people in the room. Like church is what you do, right? You, church is familiar to you. This is your turf. You're comfortable coming to church, being in church, have a Bible. Children maybe come to church. That's me, I'm a churched guy. I know without a doubt it's possible to be a churched person and not be a Christian because that was me for years. I knew the lingo. I knew how to look like a Christian but it was not real in my heart. If I had died during that stretch, and I almost did, now I would look back and say, Jesus might have looked at me and said, I never knew you. Didn't know you. We weren't in covenant relationship together. Audience this size, no doubt in my mind, there's... A number of you, that's your situation. You're a churched person, but you're not yet a Christian. I plead with you. You do not want to get to that day and have Jesus look at you and say that. You don't. Bow your knee to Jesus. Receive by faith what he did for you. He did it all. You could never be good enough for God, right? You, you say, I'm a church person. I'm a good person. Compared to who? Your coworker? Irrelevant. He's the standard. Repent, believe the gospel. The guy in the last service got baptized. He would have said, I'm a Christian, church guy, done ministry here, just got saved a couple weeks ago, got baptized this morning. Some of you are unchurched. You, you don't typically go to church. Maybe you got dragged here today. <laughs> 
I want you to know I'm so grateful you're here. We are. are. Thank you for coming. Thank you for giving and hearing. And I want you to know that Jesus loves you. He wants to know you and be known by you. And he's done everything that needed to happen for you to have a relationship with Jesus. And his offer stands. If you'll just turn from your sin and self and embrace the gospel, the good news of what Jesus did for you on the cross, paying for your sins, if you receive his righteousness by faith, believe that God raised him from the dead, that he's alive today, that he's listening. As the scripture says, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord, whoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Maybe that's your today, your day today, maybe. I hope so. You bow your heads with me in prayer. Just a moment, we're going to observe the Lord's table together. That's why these tables are up here, and they have um, baskets with little pieces of bread and a tray with cups full of grape juice. And Jesus instituted this practice with his followers 2,000 years ago. He took the Jewish Passover meal and kind of reframed it in New Covenant language, and he said, look, this, this now represents me. This bread represents my body, which is going to be crushed for your sins. And this blood represents my blood. Or this cup represents my blood, which is about to be shed for you. And so, you know, if you're a believer here today, if you're a Christian, I, I encourage you right now to prepare your hearts and then get ready to come. It's, it was originally a family meal. That's what it was, a family meal. Family of God doing this in remembrance of him. If you're not a Christian here today, maybe this is your day to become a Christian. And we're going to have prayer partners on either side of these tables over kind of back in the corner and you can go to any of them and say, look, I, I'm hearing what's being said. I, I, I need to become a Christian. Explain to me how and they would love to pray with you. I'm going to be up here myself and if you'd like to come to me and say, you know, maybe I'm a church person and I've been a phony, I want to be saved or an unchurched person, I'd love to talk and pray with you about that. When you're ready, you can come and partake of the Lord's table. And we'll sing some worship songs together.